human spirit lives in the dark water. It protects what our ancestors called the nexus of all realities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, the often wonderful of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. Today on the program, something different. This is not a real episode. I mean, okay, it is a real episode. It's just, um, it's not in continuity. Not in continuity. Not in continuity. That's not the right word. Uh, I'm not explaining this well. Hey, let's start over. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities. Okay. Today on the program, I'll be discussing the 2005 Brett Leonard-directed loose adaptation of Man-Thing. And by loose adaptation, I'm talking really, really loose. This is something I've been threatening to do for a while now, and I figured I'd just get it out of the way. Spoilers, this is not a good movie. But I shall endeavor to find something interesting to say about it. That, that being said, it may be a short episode. I don't know. But first, I want to give a bit of an explanation. You may have noticed that there's been another gap between episodes again, and for that I'm sorry, but I will try to give a brief uh, rundown of, uh, of why that happened again and to let everyone know why that's going to change. Uh, this gets a little personal, and I'm not going to go deep into the details, but a little over two years ago, I ran into a bit of a financial kerfuffle. <laughs> An economic downturn, if you will. So because of this situation, uh, I took a second job. And so for the better part of two years now, I've been working two full-time jobs. This has limited my free time. I, I was still, that being said, I was still attempting to, to uh, produce two podcasts, maintain a blog, and write a novel. Uh, that always sounds so pretentious when I say it out loud, but uh, I'm, I'm attempting to write a novel. Not to mention other things like, you know, seeing my family and attempting to sleep. Finding the time for these things has been difficult. Now, I should say that there are creators out there who are, who are able to juggle work and personal life and overcome great difficulties and still manage to never miss a deadline and be constantly professional with their creative output. Turns out, I'm not one of them. Now, I found this very difficult, and uh, that's what's led to delays and hiatuses. Hiatuses? What's the plural of hiatus? Hiatai? Maybe it's just hiatus, like sheep or fish. Anyway, uh, the point is that time management has not been my strong suit. But as of mid-May, as I record this, my financial kerfuffle has been downgraded to minor inconvenience. So I'm officially a one-job guy. That's right, I quit my second job. And um, suffice to say, this frees up a lot of time. Uh, so what I intend to do for... well. What I intend to do first, to be honest, is uh, sleep for about a week. But after that, I'm going to get busy on all the things I've wanted to get done, but haven't had a chance to. First and foremost will be a heavy focus on Nexus of All Realities. In addition to producing more episodes faster, I'm going to write some articles uh, about Man-Thing and Steve Gerber and other comics related to this that have, that have just been brewing around for a while. And I'm going to post those on the website, nexusofallrealities.com as well as a bevy of other projects that have been just sitting around waiting to get work done. Uh, I have, a, I, seriously, I have a half a dozen notebooks just filled with ideas and outlines and half-written articles and stories just waiting to see the light of day. Uh, I'm going to talk more about these things in upcoming weeks as they begin to take shape. 
both here on the Nexus of All Realities and also on the Collected Edition, the other podcast I do with Brian Reese. I'm also going to share some of the art I've done, as well as writing. I'm also an artist of dubious quality, and I thought I might share some of that on the site as well. Uh, I've done some sketches of Man-Thing and other characters. Uh, I've been reluctant to, to share those because this is the internet and my ego is fragile, but, but caution to the wind. So you'll probably see more of that in the upcoming weeks. So it's a very exciting time for me, and hopefully there'll be more entertaining content for you. But enough of that. Now it is time to talk about a movie that is... Let's go with interesting effort. This is what the trailer sounds like. There is a sacred place in the deep swamp where the mangrove trees grow close together and the rays of the sun are never seen. My people call this place the Dark Water. It is here that the spirit of the swamp lives. Now the swamp cries out a warning. A time of retribution is here. Carl Williams, a new sheriff. What brings you here? Oh, my God. That's a lot of missing persons for a small town. We know nothing about that war. It is full of magic, both light and dark. You really believe in all this? Our most powerful guardian spirit lives in the dark water. What the hell happened to you? Ah! Go home, or you will die. Man-Thing, directed by Brett Leonard and starring Matthew Lenevez, Rachel Taylor, and Jack Thompson, was released in 2005 from Lionsgate Films. And I can say with full confidence that of all the films released in 2005, this was definitely one of them. So, yeah, as I said earlier, this is not a very good film. By all objective standards of movie making, this is not well made. That being said, I don't want to just sit here and trash the film for 30 minutes. That's not what I enjoy doing. Now, it has become fashionable in the world of online critique, specifically but not exclusively in the realm of YouTubery, to simply hate on a film and call it hot garbage or trash fire or any other rubbish-themed phrases, and that's what passes for a review. I find that sort of thing tedious. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't begrudge anyone for doing that. The whole point of this thing that we do is to to make money, or at least, you know, get a little something. And outrage and takedown videos and articles 
they get the most hits, and therefore that maximizes your monetization. So, you know, good on you, I guess. But again, that's not what I want to do. I want to accentuate the positive, find the good things. And even in this movie, you know, there are some interesting things here. Few and far between, but they are there. Failing, but trying nonetheless. With that in mind, I'm going to begin. Imagine a world with no Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is a dark and desolate place where filmmakers fear comic book accuracy and clad their heroes in tight leather. So, so much leather. It's 2005. We are still three years away from Iron Man ushering in the superhero movie renaissance we live in today. And comic book filmdom is still in its infancy and suffering from sometimes agonizing growing pains. The common misconception is that Schumacher's Batman and Robin killed the superhero genre for ages until X-Men came along and revived it. You know, that's not really the case. While Batman and Robin may have scared some studios into being more cautious, the fact is that the very next year, in 1998, Blade came out. So there wasn't a huge gap between comic book films. And it is true that X-Men and later Raimi's Spider-Man proved that there was an audience for this sort of thing, and so every studio attempted to cash in on that. And while there were successes like like X-Men 2, there were also things like Catwoman and Daredevil. And they're not what anyone would call successful or good. Man-Thing falls into this latter designation. You see, in the year 2000, Marvel partnered up with Artisan Entertainment in order to produce 15 movies based on various characters. These included, among others, Iron Fist, Black Widow, Luke Cage, The Punisher, and obviously Man-Thing. Many did not see the light of day. Again, obviously. Uh, Strangely, Man-Thing was one of the few that did. Go figure. Now, these films were evidently going to include some theatrical releases like The Punisher, but it seems most were meant to be direct-to-DVD fare, which is what Man-Thing should have been. But in 2004, Lionsgate merged with Artisan, and in an attempt to cash in on the success of the rising popularity of comic book movies, it was given a theatrical release. Well, not in the U.S. or Canada. You see, test audiences were apparently underwhelmed, and many walked out. So in North America, Man-Thing was released as a sci-fi original TV movie on the Sci-Fi Channel back when the Sci-Fi Channel was still spelled correctly. Suffice to say, it was not well-received. But as this was just a TV movie shown on a second-tier cable channel, no one really noticed. I did, but I have a weird fixation on Swamp Monsters, so... I was one of the rare few that actually watched it when it was first aired on TV. The film itself was made in Australia, had a ridiculously low budget, and very little oversight. Producer Avi Arad, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, and if you don't know who this man is, he pretty much has had a hand in everything comic book related coming to the screen in the late 90s and and 2000s. Uh, That's a bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. Anyway, even he kind of trashed the film, saying, and I quote, The one hiccup we had was the one project we didn't micromanage. We were not going to the Outback, there was so much going on. But we'll never do that again. We should never have trusted anybody that far away without our supervision. Thankfully, it was a small movie and not a disaster. If we were there and on top of it, it would have been an amazing movie. I look at the horror genre and I think, Shit, I can't believe this. We learned our lesson. Unquote. So even though it had the Marvel label on it, and a distributor like Lionsgate, Man-Thing was a low-budget B-movie horror flick that no one seemed to pay attention to. So what's this movie all about? 
deep in the swamp of Louisiana? The Schist Oil Company is drilling on Native American land. This upsets some people, particularly the Native Americans to whom the land belongs. So when a new sheriff, Kyle Williams, a Yankee, arrives in town, he's brought up to speed with the protests against Schist and the fact that 47 people have disappeared, including the previous sheriff and a Native American shaman named Ted Salas. Really? Okay. Soon, Sheriff William meets the residents of the town. That include activist schoolteacher Terry Richards, medical examiner Val Mayerick, photographer Mike Plug, security guard Steve Gerber. Are you catching these names? Pretty clever, huh? Pete Horn, the replacement shaman, walking cliches, the Thibodeau brothers, eco-terrorist Rene Larocque, and corporate goon Fred Schist and his stupid son Jake. After meeting all these people and the fact that 47 people are missing, Sheriff Williams comes to the conclusion that something bad must be going on in this small town. Well, it turns out that in order to get the land to drill on, the Schists, with the help of the Thibodeaux, killed Ted Salas and dumped him in the dark waters deep in the swamp. But due to the inherent magic embedded in the soil and the rage in Ted Salas's soul, he returned as Man-Thing, a giant swamp monster made for killing. After a pep talk from Pete Horn, which thankfully includes tons of backstory and lore, Sheriff Williams and Terry, the schoolteacher, head off into the dark waters where they encounter Man-Thing just a killing up a storm. They also meet LaRock, planting bombs on an oil drill, and Schist going full maniacal villain with a gun. This all culminates with Man-Thing killing Schist and LaRock sacrificing himself by blowing up himself, the drill, and the monster, allowing the sheriff and the schoolteacher to go home and have a relationship. So, anyone who's familiar with the comics may notice a few discrepancies here. First of all, it's set in Louisiana rather than Florida. I suppose this was done to make it seem more remote and hillbillyish. And boy, howdy, does this movie lead on the hillbilly redneck backwoods stereotype, but more on that in a minute. The other glaring thing to notice is Ted Salas. In this movie, he is not a scientist, working on a super soldier serum that he is injected with and that combines with the swamp to turn him into the man-thing. Rather, he is a Native American shaman who calls upon the spirit of the swamp to transform him into a killing machine. I'm sorry, protector of the swamp. Well, that, that's, a, that's a significant difference. And to the film's credit, it does use Schist as the big bad. For the most part, he does what Schist does in the comics. He builds in the swamp and acts like a stereotypical villain. Granted, he's an oil baron in the film rather than an airport mogul, but corporate bad guy doing corporate bad guy things is all he really needs as a character trait. The actual thing the corporation does is just a minor detail. Also, in the movie, he's Fred Schist. They don't use the subtle F.A. Schist or fascist as he does in the comics. Maybe the filmmakers thought that was a little bit too on the nose. Or maybe they didn't notice. Uh, but the symbol or, uh, or the logo of the Schist Company is actually two drill heads. They make like the double hammers you see in the Pig Floyd's The Wall. Uh, so maybe the production designer knew what they were doing. I don't know. Could happen. The other big change, and this is really the biggest change from the comics, is the portrayal of Man-Thing. Here he is just a monster. A giant tentacled swamp monster that stalks and kills people. He's not the empathic protector of dimensional reality that burns folks when they're afraid. Now, he's here he's just a mindless killer. Again, that is a significant difference. 
But the thing is, if you look at it, someone knew the comic. They might not have cared about the comic, but someone was familiar enough with the comic that certain details were included, like the use of the creator's names as characters. Now, whether it was the writer, the director, the producer, or the, the, the key grip, I don't know. But someone, someone knew or at least was briefed on the content of the comic book. Even the basic premise seems to be loosely, and I mean loosely, based on the plot of an issue. That issue being Adventure in the Fear number 16, Cry of the Native. Uh, that's episode 9 of this here podcast, if you'd like to give it a re-listen. Now, that issue revolves around the Schist Company beginning construction in the swamp, on Native American land and some of those Native Americans uh, destroying the construction equipment and attacking the workers and basically defending themselves in their land. This is the basic setup of the movie. I find it hard to believe that this was just a coincidence. Someone somewhere in the muddled production history of this movie was actually attempting to make an honest-to-God, faithful-to-the-source-material Man-Thing movie. Now, obviously... The plan for that got lost in a heap of cliches and genre tropes, and the actual execution of the issue it may or may not have been based on was scrapped in favor of generic monster kills people, some of whom show their boobies for no real reason. The real tragedy of the Man-Thing movie is that there is a germ of an actual decent film adaptation wedged in there, but never realized. Now the last thing I want to say about the, the, the comic book connections and the one thing that I cannot get past. And that is the use of Steve Gerber's name. Now, I don't mind the use of the name per se, but what I do not care for is the character they place it on. The character of Steve Gerber in the film is the cantankerous security guard. And that character is a stereotypical racist, sexist, ignorant piece of garbage. An actual line of dialogue from this character is, when he's speaking to uh, Terry, the activist teacher, why don't y'all go f*** a tree, you hippie b-? Now, maybe it's just me being oversensitive, but the real Steve Gerber was an intelligent, thoughtful person, a talented writer who pushed the norms of his day, incorporated ideas of equality, ecology, anti-establishment sentiments into his work that challenged the perceived ideas of, of, of race and gender and social status with the use of subtle and not-so-subtle satire and parody. To affix his name to a dumbass racist piece of shit is just offensive. And for all I'm attempting to find silver linings in this movie, that is one fault for which it will never be forgiven. Okay, so it's not a fateful adaptation of Man-Thing from the comics. In that sense, the movie is a failure, for sure. But let's take this on its own merits. Let's take this as a standalone horror flick. Uh, Let's remove it from its Marvel trappings and look at it as, well, what it is, a low-budget horror movie. I actually love low-budget horror movies. Uh, Not in a postmodern, ironic sort of way, but in a genuine, golly, I really like this sort of way. (laughs) Even even so, this is a difficult movie to love, or even like in a platonic sort of way. (laughs) It stars Matthew Lenevez as Sheriff Kyle Williams. If you don't know Matthew Lenevez, just picture a low-budget David Duchovny. It also stars Rachel Taylor as Terry Richards. 
Comic book fans might know her as Trish Walker in Jessica Jones. And as leads, they're really not bad. Uh, Although Rachel Taylor's accent does fade in and out in varying degrees of strength and consistency, but to be fair, the less said about accents in this movie is for the best. Just let it be known that they're all from the South, y'all. But you can see they're really trying hard to make this stuff work. There's some effort going on here, but there's just not a lot to work with. Every character in this movie is a trope or a cliche. And, and, and don't get me wrong, cl- tropes and cliches are fine. Re- really, they are. They're, they're just shorthand to get us up to speed quickly. And, and we can get to know who and what a person is right away without much exposition. But the thing is, once you introduce these tropes and cliches, do something with them. They are shorthand, not the entirety of a character's personality. <laughs> you use them to introduce and then you build on it. You know, for, for instance, Mike Plug is the crazy conspiracy theorist that believes the monsters are real. That's it. There's, there's a lot that could be done with that character, but nothing is ever done with him. He says some crazy stuff, then he dies. The Thibodeau brothers are generic thugs with bad teeth who wear overalls with no shirt. They say some menacing things and then they get killed. Steve Gerber is the, is the cantankerous old man, then he gets killed. Val Mayeric is the medical examiner that smokes cigarettes and is just tired of this shit. And on and on and on. Hell, even the shists at one point sit and talk about their evil plan and then laugh maniacally. <sighs> Again, all this would be fine as setup if something, anything, was done with these characters. Just one subversion of expectation. Just one. Is that so much to ask? But I'm straying away from the redemptive reading, I believe. (laughs) A little bit tougher than I thought it was going to be. So, I guess let's talk about Man-Thing himself. Forgetting the fact that Man-Thing isn't really Man-Thing, as a generic horror monster, he's really not that bad. Gloopy vegetation, growing red eyes, tree-like tentacles. As a movie monster... He's really okay. The design is quite good. Sure, it's cheap, but in the great grand scheme of things, he's an effective monster. But, and this may sound weird, what's his motivation? I mean, we're told he's the spirit of Ted Salas, merged with the magic of the swamp, to be its protector. Okay, cool, got it, I'm on board. But, he just kills indiscriminately. Sure, he's butchering the schist workers, that's what he's supposed to do, but we're also told that 47 people are missing, 47 kills, and we know some of them at least were good guys, like the the first sheriff or the party bro at the start of the film, I'll get to that in a minute. And he kills Pete Horn, the replacement shaman, who was supposed to be Salas's friend. Look, I mean, it's fine if the monster is just going to be a killing machine, that's, that's typical horror fare, but don't feed me this story about how He's the magic protector of the swamp and then do nothing with it. But I guess that's the, you know, that's the story of this movie, set up and no payoff. That's what the film does best. You know, I I know what this film was going for. It wanted to be a mix of southern gothic horror and supernatural slasher film. And honestly, that would have been fine. I think that would have made for a pretty decent, enjoyable, low-budget horror movie had they been able to pull it off. But everything here seems so half-assed. I mean, the movie opens with a scene of teenage kids at a party, and of course two run off to have sex in a canoe. That's what we call American beer, you know, f***ing close to water, am I right? (laughs) And anyway, uh, of course the boy gets killed while the girl gets a 
blood-splattered, gratuitous boob shot. It's so 80s slasher film, but without the innocent charm. But to be fair, the direction does attempt to be a little different after that. The film is directed by Brett Leonard, the same fellow who did Lawnmower Man and Virtuosity. And those films are, are regarded as cults, well, not classics, but they have a following. So he's not a complete unknown, and he's not an amateur. And there is a certain level of competence here. You can tell that he is attempting to be stylish, that at least a minimal effort is being put in with camera angles and imagery. For instance, the scene transitions are a series of quick cuts of random pictures and gloopy things. This does add something dynamic to the proceedings, but there's just something missing from it. If you've ever seen the show Angel, the, the, the Buffy spinoff, it employed the same sort of thing. Uh, between scenes, there would be quick cuts of characters and scenery. But in Angel, these things weren't random. Everything shown was relevant to the episode. Either things happening between the scenes or flashes of upcoming events, that sort of thing. In Man-Thing, there is no relevancy. It's just images that have a vague creepiness to them. And that kind of sums up what's going on here in general. It seems as if the movie wants to do something different, or at least it wants to take those familiar tropes and play with them in a unique way. But it doesn't. In the end, it just leans hard into those tropes, and they just sit there. They just sit there and do nothing. Stereotypes, not characters. Locations, not places. There's no, there's no heart to this film. It just becomes a bog-standard horror imitation. <laughs> bog-standard. Set in a swamp. I didn't plan that, but, yeah, I'll take it. So the final analysis for 2005's Man-Thing is simply this. It's not a good movie, but it is an interesting artifact of a time before the explosion of comic book and superhero movies into the pop culture. A time when... Anything and everything was being tried to capture that sweet, sweet nerd demographic. And various genres and characters, both mainstream and obscure, were thrown at the wall. Literally, because movies are actually shown on a wall. That's how we watch them. And it is, it is a reminder of what A. should not be done when adapting a character to the screen, and B. hopefully shows filmmakers what can be done with a creature like Man-Thing, if give it a little bit of care. A Man-Thing movie done well could be something quite spectacular, if that time and care is given to what makes the character special. There have already been nods to Man-Thing in the MCU, so this could happen. And if it ever does happen, let's pray that someone is paying attention to this and not just dumping it in Australia. No offense to Australia. There are worse places to be dumped. Okay, so that's it for the 2005 Man-Thing movie. Uh, I did it, and I will never have to talk about it again. Although I do own it now, which is sad. Okay, well, thank you for listening, everybody. So that's it. That's probably going to be a little short one, but thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, I do appreciate it, and again, sorry for the gaps. I hope, you know, I've freed up 40 hours a week of my time, so hopefully this uh, this will finally... A little bit more uh, standardized. Uh, in less than a week's time here, I'm going to be releasing a real Honest to God episode. Uh, getting back to Giant Size Man Thing number one. 
which is so much fun. Uh, and I know that's going to come out because it's already been recorded. Hooray. So again, thanks everybody for listening. Please uh, do send me your comments at uh, comments at nexusofallrealities.com or you can go to nexusofallreality.com and leave comments on individual episodes or hit me up on Twitter at nexusofall. All this will be played in the end tag. Oh, and uh, try to stick around till the end of the credits because I have a special musical treat for you. So until next time, everybody, I got to come up with it. I got to come up with a slogan. Keep it swampy. I don't know. That's terrible. I'll come up with a better one next time. Goodbye, everybody. You've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?